Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Cavanaugh, Director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University in Chicago. Okay, I'm here with uh, Sister Catherine Mulligan. I'm Bill Cavanaugh, the Director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University, and delighted to have Sister Catherine Mulligan here as uh, our guest today. Sister Catherine Mulligan is a daughter of charity, a native of Ireland who has coordinated the development of Daughters of Charity projects in Kenya over the past 12 years. One such project is Project Dream. She was trained as a nurse and midwife with years of experience as a hospital administrator, but then she was the provincial in Ireland when she was invited to open a new mission in Kenya in 2001, and she's been there uh, in Kenya 14 years now it is. Okay, wonderful. So welcome, Sister Catherine. Thank you. So I wonder if we could just start um, on the kind of micro level Tell us a story about one of your clients, one of the people with AIDS that you've come into contact with uh, through your work with Project Dream. Uh, Yes, I mean, it's difficult to pick a particular story, but when I think of stories and when I think of HIV and how it has affected people, I think mostly of the children and adolescents who received the virus from their mothers before they were born. So they're born with the disease, They have to live with that on lifelong treatment. And there comes a time when they're very self-conscious, very angry. And one young man that I was talking to just recently at school, I mean, they have to take their ARVs a few times a day or morning and evening, certainly. But once other children get to know they're taking drugs, of course, they want to know why. They keep pushing them. They're bullied. There's name calling and they feel very depressed, very suicidal. And he started throwing away his tablets, hiding them and throwing them away and not taking them. Then he said he got very, very sick and he came home uh, from school uh, at the weekend. He was boarding during the week and his mother was shocked. She thought he was going to die. He was so thin, he looked so sick. And he said he he just didn't know what to do. He couldn't go back to school. He just felt so bad. He couldn't explain it. It was a confusing time for him. And knowing that he got the disease from his mother created all sorts of um, relationship issues there uh, in talking to her. But a neighbour of hers told her about Dream. So herself and the boy came to Dream and were tested. The mother, of course, knew she was positive. She was already on treatment, but they were both tested again and both started on treatment. And I suppose one of the things about the DREAM program is the amount of time we put into counselling and helping especially young people to understand what's going on and that they're not to blame for the fact that they have it or, you know, that they're, I suppose, to to try and take away some of the guilt and try and rebuild that relationship with the mother, especially if the mother is still alive. In this case, she was. In many cases, the mothers have died. So he went on, he continued to come to dream and he would say himself, he never looked back. He never went back to that school. He went to a school nearer that facilitated the possibility of coming to dream. And now he's a teenager. 
He's in a relationship with another young woman and she's not positive. So that creates another problem. So he was encouraged to bring her with him to the clinic, which he did. And the doctors and clinicians there saw both of them together and saw them separately and explained to her that he could lead a normal life once he was compliant with medication for the rest of his life. He would be, you know, able to live just as anybody else who doesn't have the disease. And she would also be put on treatment to protect her, especially in the beginning, but to protect her all along. So he said to me, she was so thrilled, one, that he brought her and that he trusted her and that she was told and that everything was explained. And he said, when I finish college, we hope to get married. Oh, wonderful yeah. story. So, yeah. I mean, all of the teenagers have stories like that. If there's any group amongst all the groups that we look after, probably the adolescents are the most challenging, they're the most vulnerable, and most of them didn't receive the virus from their mothers before they were born, so they're born with the disease, they have to come to terms with that. Mothers find it very difficult to tell their young children that they had the disease and they have given it to the child. And often they find out by default by someone else telling them or because they're being teased at school over having to take medication. And now with so much uh, raising of awareness of the general public, people begin to know that's why you're taking the drugs, even children, and mm. they'll start uh, name calling and spreading the rumour around and all that kind of thing. So for teenagers, it's particularly difficult. So what's different about uh, Project Dream from other approaches uh, that have been tried to the treatments of HIV and AIDS? In the context of Kenya, uh, it's probably a little bit more difficult to say how different it is. When we started, it was extremely diff diff different to anything that had been there before. But uh, Kenya and the health services are scaling up their response to HIV and to many other things, but to HIV. So they're beginning to balance out on a lot of fronts. So I can't say that it's unique in relation to some of the things that are going on. Of course, we're embedded in the national health uh, system, so everybody learns from everyone else as well. But also the global uh, response, the World Health Organization, the Global Fund, uh, UNAIDS, all of these are putting pressure on, Kenyan, on Kenya, but on African governments to scale up their uh, care and treatment. So there's a lot of scaling up going on. But DREAM, when we started, of course, the programme doesn't belong specifically to us. I mean, it's an adopted uh, programme for us. It belongs to a lay Catholic community in Rome who started the DREAM project. They had been involved as young people in Mozambique, bringing humanitarian aid to Mozambique during the civil war that lasted for 12 years. So this is the San Egidio community. This is the San Egidio community. And once the Civil War was over and incidentally the peace accord was signed. It was hammered out and signed in their headquarters in Rome, which was a big thing. Then they turned their minds to what else they could do for Mozambique. And at that time, all of Sub-Saharan Africa was ravaged by HIV. And a we lost a whole generation of people across all of the countries, uh, usually uh, professional people, teachers, doctors, nurses, 
So it had a big impact in Africa for that reason. But they devised this program and they said they would bring into Africa exactly the same quality of care and treatment as was available in Western Europe or the United States. Now, that was in the late 1990s. That was a big promise, but they delivered on that. So they designed the program so that it would be exactly the same and that the poorest of the poor would have access to that care and treatment. So it would all be free to them. We began the collaboration with them in 2005. So we took on to deliver this program in the countries in Africa where we were. They have brought it into 10 countries in Africa. We've brought it into six countries since then. The program was theirs. We were delivering it on the ground because we're there. We have our native sisters. We have lots of staff. And I suppose it's easier for us. They come and go to Africa. We're there all the time. Mm -hmm. So that makes a very big difference. Now they have trained up their staff in the countries they're in. And generally, we have a very well-trained African staff in all of the countries. So the things that were different at that time, we did a survey within a 10-mile radius of where we live in, in Nairobi to see what was available before we decided to go down this road because it's an expensive program and we had to build the Dream Centre and equip it. So before we did that, we did a survey to see what was actually available. There was loads of places where people could get tested and some counselling around the testing. Then they would be advised to go to the hospital or to a clinic or they would be told somewhere they could go to get treatment. But if they never went, nobody followed up. And if they did go, they would get drugs, but sometimes there would be stockouts of drugs. And no place where they do doing extra things for pregnant mothers to prevent the spread, the transmission from mother to baby. They weren't doing nutrition programs anywhere. Support groups, we started those. So there were many additional extras that we could and would provide. And when we were, we got an agreement signed with the Ministry of Health in Nairobi, a 10-year agreement. Part of that was that we would be allowed to deliver DREAM in its entirety with all these new protocols which were not part of the national scene at that time. So, of course, it had great success. We started pushing pregnant mothers on treatment at 12 to 14 weeks of pregnancy to prevent the transmission to the baby. Now, in, in Kenya generally and in Africa generally at that time, nobody was put on treatment until they began to show symptoms. You can have the HIV virus for 10 to 15 years with no symptoms. If you're not uh, tested, you might not know you had it. Some people might get sick earlier for other reasons because they're malnourished or whatever, but many people can go on. Now everybody, as soon as they're tested and found to be positive, is put on treatment, not, not just pregnant mothers. At that time, they would put pregnant mothers on treatment if the mother herself needed it, but not otherwise. But we put them on irrespective once they were positive. And in... 12 years we're running dream we've never had one baby born positive wow started with us went on the treatment and was compliant with the treatment we have had about four babies born positive but there were two mothers who came to us in the last trimester of their pregnancy and it was too late the baby was already infected Wow, so part of what was innovative about Project Dream yeah. them is, is the kind of holistic yes. uh, view. You're, you're, you're dealing, you're, you're yes. doing counseling, 
you're providing nutrition for yes. people that don't have adequate nutrition. Yes. You're providing first-class drug treatments. Yes, treatment. We have a molecular laboratory, so we're able to do all our own tests. And we have very good support groups for different categories. We have a support group for men and women separately because they won't share if they're together in a support group easily. But we do have support groups for discordant couples where one is um, positive and one is negative. And we have support groups for mothers and their babies, for the adolescents, for um, same-sex partners. We have loads of support groups and they meet once or twice a month and there's always one of the staff present there to answer questions for them. But they give tremendous support and for the adolescents we have peer counselling. So we get people to accompany them and we match them up themselves with somebody who has come to terms with the disease and who's willing to be a peer counsellor and we train them and we take them away as the adolescents uh, for uh, seminars and some fun time and that and to try and support them because they're particularly vulnerable and many of them are unemployed and unemployable because they haven't got skills or training or that and they're doing menial tasks and one of the external evaluations we had done the evaluator said to us afterwards the people that touched him most were the teenagers who said they didn't have the five shillings which is like five cents here to come from where they lived to the clinic you know there were so they would walk miles to come wow so poverty is a big poverty part of the equation oh yes and we have deliberately targeted i mean where we live and where the dream center is is in a very nice part of nairobi but all around it just off the main road are all these informal settlements because people come to the capital i suppose it happens in every country where there's poverty people migrate to the capital in the hope of getting non-existent work. You know, it's just not there for them. So they, they build these little shanty towns and add another tin building made out of tin and scraps of wood, and it just grows and grows. So we target those, and we have a home-based care team, which is also different to any other service that I know of. It goes out every day uh, to visit these places, and we train what we call activists or volunteers. The volunteers are clients who were very sick but have been on treatment for a certain length of time, have been compliant, understand the disease and understand how important it is to be compliant, to come for their appointments and all of that. Then we give them some training on counselling and how to approach other clients. And then we give each one of them a certain number of clients that they supervise. So they link in with them every day or every second day to see how they're doing. Have they taken their medication? When is they, they will know when their next appointment is. Make sure they come, accompany them if necessary. And they also, if they find somebody sick or somebody that they're worried about, they'll phone in to one of the clinicians to say to send out the, the mobile team. So that also is a great help because they're the eyes and ears. And I suppose there's still a lot of stigma attached to HIV. And they don't like, we had to take, we had Dream uh, Centre or Dream Programme or something painted on the side of the vehicle. We had to take it off because they didn't want their neighbours, no matter how poor they are, 
They don't want the neighbours knowing that that's what people are coming out to them for. So having local people who themselves are HIV and have come to terms with that, encouraging and mentoring and supporting these people is far greater than sending the staff out until they have to go out until there's somebody who's sick. But sure. they're out every day because we have 3,000, over 3,000 clients in our books. Wow, wow. And, and what is the role of uh, Catholicism in the, the project as, as motivation, as, um, I mean, do you, do you yeah. provide spiritual care uh, uh, as well? We do, and for the staff in particular, like our staff, I'd say a small percentage of them are actually Catholic. I mean, we don't discriminate when we're employing staff as to what um, religion they belong to. I mean, if they're competent at the work we want them for. But then we do a huge programme on values and the values that we want to see inculcated in the programme and on Vincentian values and on Vincent and Louise and on what it means to be a Vincentian staff member. And I suppose we're saying, you know, Vincentian ministry arises out of a particular Christian response is Christian spirituality, a deep awareness of the gospel, a set of values, an appreciation of the every person, well, the dignity of each person, and all of those things together form, uh, well, put the poorest of the poor centre stage, and that is what, and you can see that in the work they do. Like, the poorer the person is that comes in, the more attention they'll get. And that's what we try to, to get them to do. You know, I mean, I shouldn't say try, because what I see in the staff is that they have they have this naturally, if you give them the, the scope, I suppose, to use it and create the atmosphere, create the work climate within which that works. Then everybody helps everybody else and supports everybody else doing that. Um, so if you put the terms Catholic, HIV, AIDS, and um, Africa into a search engine, controversies over condoms, contraception yes. would come up. Mm -hmm. um, how do you all navigate that, um, that whole... Uh, yeah. set well, problematics. Like in the areas where we work and where people are so desperately poor and where the, you know, it's no use talking to them about ethics and all of that. You have to encounter them where they are. This is where they are and you have to try and keep them safe. And more importantly, keep people safe that are not HIV positive. So while we, when we take them away, I'm talking now about the adolescents. I mean, for the adults, they'll make up their own minds. But for the adolescents, when we take them away and we do workshops with them, we try to get them to understand the dignity of sex as well and where it fits into relationships and not taking advantage of people and knowing that they're HIV and that they can infect someone else and being careful. And the peer counselling goes a long way, like boys, young men with young men. But at the end of the day, you know... Some people are going to engage in risky behaviour and uh, there's nothing we can do about that. We, we do sexual education, life skills. Uh, we talk to them about um, gender-based violence, 
all those kinds of things. I was reading something the other day, I think, uh, I'm sure it's from Gaudium at Spares, I was looking at something else, nothing to do with this, but I was struck by one quotation from Benedict saying, Christianity is not, being a Christian is not an ethical choice, it's an encounter. Now, that's an encounter with God, but an encounter with God as we find him in other people. And the encounter is what matters. And fine, maybe the day will come when you can raise that to a more... It's not that our encounters should be unethical, but we don't start with ethics. Cool. Well, could you give us a little big picture of um, the HIV-AIDS crisis in Africa? A lot of us... It was in the news 20 years ago, and we don't really have an update. Could you mm -hmm. kind of um, walk us through that? Well, worldwide at the moment, there's 37.9 uh, million people living with HIV. Two-thirds of those are in sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, it's a huge number of people affected by AIDS. Uh, at the same time, you know... The prevalence is going down. The number of new cases is drastically reducing every year. So that's encouraging because it means the re awareness raising is working. Um, certainly in Kenya, there is absolutely no reason why anybody shouldn't know their status because there's so many programs. It's on the television. Uh, they really have rolled out a big awareness program. And all of us are doing awareness all the time, even going out to villages and trying to raise awareness, doing testing for them on the spot, all that kind of thing. Like, even with all of that and with the advances in HIV treatment, the ARVs, the new drugs, the fact that everyone is put on medication straight away, you know, uh, once they know their status, all that has reduced the number of new infections, but the people who are currently infected will be on treatment for the rest of their lives, no matter what happens. And people get tired of it too, and the drugs can be very toxic, very sickening, and easy for people, especially women and mothers who are burdened with so much else, to give up taking them. So, you know, and, there, and HIV can produce new strains of the disease as well. So Africa is particularly hurting from HIV, and yet there is good news everywhere in terms of people. The stigma has reduced, mm. not completely gone away, but it has reduced. And education, and especially if I'm talking about Kenya, the national education has greatly improved. So with education, women know more about, and more women, more young women are going to school and going to college. So all of that is a road out of poverty and a road into more self-awareness and what they want to do or don't want to do. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear a word of hope. Yes. Oh, then. yes. Yeah. It is a hopeful scene. Could you talk a little bit about your own journey? Um, what, what attracted, how did you end up in Kenya um, coming, coming from Ireland? What, what attracted you to the Daughters of Charity? Um, a little bit about your own story in healthcare and how you ended up in Kenya. Um, I suppose, I mean, go, my own journey goes back a long way now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer young, but I worked with the daughters for a year or two before I became a sister. 
And the thing that struck me most, and it has struck me over and over again throughout my life and in every country where I meet them, is that they're very much on a level with everybody, you know, with the people they serve. You know, they're just there with them, helping them, urging them on. We're out in the community, walking around, trying to do the work we're doing. I mean, okay, we have had big hospitals, especially here, and we've been in administration, but there's just something immediate about their contact with the poor and their ability to see who the poor are and how to help them. That attracted me from the very beginning. Now, that might be unfair to many other religious communities who are doing exactly the same. But, you know, when you come out of school, the balance in school between religious and students is very different. And then to be with sisters where you were as important as anyone else on the staff and you worked away with them and it was a team and the people were there and you just served them. I've seen that repeated over and over again throughout my life everywhere. Wow, so it's something in the genes that comes it's from Vincent and Louise. There, it's the charism, and I see it in our young Kenyan sisters. We only started, well, we're only in Kenya since 2001, and at the time, uh, it was the American Vincentian fathers that invited us to come there. Father Barry Moriarty, who was probably, he was here in Chicago, but he was in on the mission at that time. And he invited, he was looking, I suppose, for the daughters to come from anywhere. Ireland was one of the places he came, and I was the provincial at the time. So we responded to it, and it became a collaborative effort between the English-speaking provinces, Ireland, Britain, and the provinces of the United States. So all of them gave money and gave personnel to try and set up the mission in the beginning. And we do a lot of work in Kenya, apart from the DREAM program. But the young Kenyans come, and I often say, like, we don't do anything very much to attract vocations. They just come. And we're getting young people of quality. Many of them finish their college education, so they're teachers and social workers and different things, and have a choice and could make a choice. But something about the work attracts them. And could you say a little bit about what that something is? Well, um, as, you know, it's what I'm saying. They just love the work with the very poor. And they're out there amongst them. From the first day they come to us, we take everybody for a year's work experience first just to see how they are and how they relate with us. But they love that the fact that they're out working with people from day one. And that continues then, and we try to build up their skills or give them extra education or other professional qualifications that they may need. But they, they just have a heart for the poor. And again, they just seem to absorb that, something like osmosis, I don't know. <laughs> it, just, it just happens. Yeah. And of course, we have a lot, as you know here, Vincentian literature, so we give them a lot of... Uh, education and training and they go to Paris to our mother house and they've been to Ireland many of them and all of them will go so they have a sense of the international community and what we do everywhere and they just seem to fit into it and be happy in it and we now have 25 Kenyan sisters oh wonderful so wow. you know they're they're forging their own uh, I mean, heading up, in fact, the Dream Centre has all Kenyan staff and there's a sister 
the administration there, a Kenyan sister. There were two Americans before that, one after the other, but now there's a Kenyan sister there. So that's big for them to be able to take over a project like that and yeah. run it. Another uh, girl who graduated last year is starting a street children's project in the northwest uh, in a town there that has a huge problem with street children. And she's doing that now. She has staff, but she's heading that up on her own and yeah. moving on with it. The word that struck me when you said that was happy, right? Yes, they're, they can see happy. that people are happy doing happy. doing yes. this kind of work yes. in, a, in a real profound yes. way. Yes. Yeah. And one of them was telling me one day that in Kitali, this town I'm talking about, the local people refer to them as the sisters who walk about. Oh, how wonderful. Because there is a tendency everywhere, and it happened to us too in our evolution to now, to build schools and hospitals, and then you're completely absorbed in that, as I was myself for years. But there's something about starting something new. We're trying to avoid institutions. And let's build the people up where they are and work with them there. Just like Pope Francis says, get out, yes. get out into the streets. Into right. the streets. Yeah. Yes. Could you say a little bit about um, the relationship between North and South in um, in the Vincentian community? Yeah. Um, it's a it's an interesting dynamic now mm-hmm. that the center of gravity of the church has kind of gone to the global south, um, but yet still a lot of the resources are in the north. Um, how do you all um, manage that? For now, uh, the, pro- the mission in Kenya is part of the Irish province with the support of the other English-speaking provinces. So we have put resources into the programs we're doing, into the education of the sisters, at least to basic degree level, so that they have a, a qualification. Some of them will do further education than that but for now to at least get them to that stage so as they can be with their counterparts and hold their own in the work they're doing so we put money into education into formation into giving them opportunities two of them have gone off to uh, Cameroon to learn French at the moment and um, we'll have a number going to Ireland for our uh, six yearly provincial assembly this July so we, we mentor all the things that we do in the community for them to their part, but they voted for people to go, and um, this is what's happening. And then, uh, you see, we try to have a mixture, at least in Kenya, a mixture of what belongs to the congregation and what belongs to the diocese. So we're in five different places. Three of those the property belongs to the diocese. And even though we have improved the property and all of that, and we say to the sisters, you know, there's a great freedom in this. We're here. But if the diocese gets tired of us or what we're doing or doesn't like it or asks us to go, all we have to do is pack our own personal belongings and go. <laughs> you know, and that's a, a, there's a great freedom in that. Yeah. And it took them a long time to take that on board, but there is actually a great freedom in that. But then you need stability too, because these young people, you know, they have a long road ahead of them and we're all coming to the end of our road in that sense of being in Kenya. So we have to build the future provincial house for them, have places big enough where they can gather, have a church that's big enough to hold them all. And we're doing that. We have done that in Nairobi and we live next door to the Vincentian Fathers. 
So they're a great support. I mean, when we came to Kenya, they were already 10 years in Nairobi before us, but there had been another 10 years in the north of Kenya before that. But we bought, they had a big property, so we bought three acres of land from them and we have built what will be the future provincial house of Kenya when it becomes a province. Yeah. So it's about giving them stability and also we have money invested for the future for them and money invested for the like the projects like Dream and other projects. So uh, we did that before with Nigeria uh, because the Irish province and the British province together built up Nigeria and invested money in that. Now they have 160 sisters. There are no missionaries from outside there. And they have gone and opened houses in Ghana and Burkina Faso. Okay. And they have never left the poor. They've never started anything that was private or anything. They've stayed with them. So that's our experience. And it won't be long before um, be long. they'll be sending missionaries to Ireland oh, or the probably. United States. Yes, yeah. probably. <laughs> it needs to get a bit more secular before that. Can yeah. <laughs> it's easier. I think, I, this is my theory, but I'm no theologian. I think there's so much anti-church feeling in Ireland now, it's very hard to do anything. Yeah. It'll be easier to evangelize in a secular context than it is in that kind of context. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if I could just ask one more question. Sure. Um, can you just say a little bit about what, um, what you think it means to be a Vincentian uh, in the world today? I suppose there aren't, apart from like parts of the church and other religious communities, there aren't too many people seeing the world from the perspective of the poor. So that's the main thing, I think, to try and see the world from their perspective. I'm also, I also think we have to live close enough to them to, to understand that. Now, no matter how close we live to the, to the poor, and some of our houses are in very poor areas, but no matter how close we live, we have stabilizing factors in our lives that they won't ever have. You know, we belong to religious communities, indeed to families. We have training, we have um, professional expertise. We're able to manage in many ways that it'll take them a long time to be able to get to there. But at least seeing it from their perspective, not putting them down. I mean, I often say in Ireland, if we didn't have the social welfare systems we have in Ireland, people would just be as poor as they are in Africa. But they're cushioned from all of that. And you see the growing animosity about migrants and people coming into the countries, whether it's Ireland or here or anywhere else, that's going on. So we always have to keep our focus there and try to build them up, try to give them as much training and skills and uh, resources to make a living for themselves. So it's working for, yes, to be a voice for them as well, for justice, to stand up for them, to go with them when they're going looking for benefits that they're entitled to. So social, to try and bring about some kind of systemic change wherever we are, to bring about a new reality. And we can't do that on our own. That depends. You can put so much into any area, but the impact depends on how the people of the area are involved and how they use it. So to try and do things in a way that empowers the local people and to live close to them and form friendships with them 
and respond to their needs in, in a sisterly, in a, a good way that doesn't make them feel any less because they have to come looking for help. Uh, and also to be there for, uh, that's another Vincentian trait and, and a, a Catholic a church trait and for other communities as well, to, to stay for the long haul, even when things are difficult or it doesn't seem to be going, because nothing changes overnight. Sometimes you have to look back over 10 or 15 years to see just what, where they've come from. And we see that, but you won't see it in the short term. So... It's not a relief effort. A Vincentian uh, response is not a relief effort. Much as relief is needed, and we engage with it in times of disaster, but it's not that kind of response. It has to be long-term. Well, thanks for that beautiful message, Sister Kathleen. It's been a delight to, to talk with you, so thank thanks you. very much. Thank you. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the so-called Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Marlon Aguilar, Elijah Gray, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism on the web, Facebook, or Twitter.